Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks, and you're tuning in today for a very special episode. We're recording live in front of an audience at Omnivore Books. Hello, everybody. Wonderful, beautiful audience here in San Francisco, uh, and we're joined in front of this audience by today's guest, Gabriela Camara. We're so excited to have you. So Gabriela is the chef and owner of the famed seafood restaurant Contramar in Mexico City and Cala in San Francisco. And Gabriela is one of, if not the most recognized people in Mexican cuisine and a champion of fresh, sustainable cooking. Um, don't roll your eyes. This is all true. And a, <laughs> and a trailblazer in many ways. So we're super excited to have Gabriela to talk about her first cookbook, My Mexico City Kitchen, uh, which brings her vegetable forward and legume loving and seafood centric are all the descriptors I was given uh, style of home cooking to your home kitchens. Uh, it's a beautiful book and and we're super excited to have you. Hi, Gabriela. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here and to see all of you here. Thank you. Yeah. So I want to start by talking about you and growing up. So you're growing up in Mexico and you were interested in food at a very early age. I think I read that you started making your own tortillas when you were seven. Is that right? That is right. I was always a very good eater. Okay. Is that Mainly. what drew you to food? You just love to eat? Yeah. And so you knew pretty early on that you were interested in food. And I think you said you wanted to learn to make fresh tortillas because you saw them happening, being made in other people's families, right? And so you called on uh, a person who worked with your family who helped around the house to teach you how to do that. Yes. My mother is Italian and we lived in a small town where every mother of every person that I knew had been born in that town mm -hmm. and they had learned how to make tortillas with their own mother and on and on and on, generation after generation. And of course, my mother was an academic. She did not know how to make tortillas. She had no interest in learning how to make tortillas. And I felt that it was my obligation to be the tortilla maker of my family. Okay. <laughs> so at seven, eight, you start providing fresh tortillas for your family dinner. I mean, we did have this lovely lady <laughs> who worked in our house. She She didn't like cook for us while we were eating but she because the thing about tortillas is that somebody has to be making them fresh while the rest of the group is eating if you want fresh tortillas which is the way to have them so sure. usually what happens is you have a you know women that's the way it has been i'm sorry to say making tortillas you know doing the you know putting the tortillas on the comales while peep everybody else is eating so it is, um, my mother was certainly not into that. And I wasn't really either, but I, I, I did love the process of making the tortillas. And I was very proud of learning how to make tortillas. And it made me feel very from Tepoztlan, which is this town where I grew up. I felt that I, you know, that I belonged more in a way. And it's a very hands-on process making tortillas. So to it start a with totally that as a child. There is only, yeah, that's the only way to make it. <laughs> yeah, right. So what did that teach you then being sort of the first thing you're learning to cook as a seven, eight year old about your approach to food and how you sort of. Oh no, I like to, and I like to manage any doughy thing. I, I love to knead bread. My father would always make bread. Um, I, I mean, I come from a house where people actually did cook and enjoy cooking. So it was fun. And my parents were good enough to, or patient enough to let us sort of enjoy in the cooking process with them. And it was usually, cooking was usually a thing that we did as a family and, you know, 
longer things were done on weekends when we had more time, but it was a really fun thing. For me, cooking was not, I don't have the memory of somebody suffering behind the stove because they needed to have a perfect meal. Like my parents were both working and both helping and both doing everything they needed to do to feed my brother and myself. But it was always a very enjoyable part of life. I don't have any memories, but happy memories. Yeah. In terms of food. And you're, you mentioned that your mother is Italian yes. and your father is Mexican. Yes. How did those influences culinarily impact you and the way that you cook today? There are some of, I mean, it's all good food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's good and good and good and good and good together is yeah. even better. <laughs> and, and when you were growing up, your family was, you noted, very conscious of food and sort of very culinarily minded. I, mean, I think you were, your parents were even raising chickens. Right. The vegetable garden yes. were sort of cooking yes, from but, farm to table. But in home. a very unpretentious way, okay. like in a very sort of matter of fact, this is what we like to eat. And, and they were always sort of forward and progressive in their approach to living. And so we lived in this house that we, you know, we, we had solar heaters and we were like, my grandmother was, I think, into, I think she was one of the first subscribers to the whole earth catalog. So okay. we, I come from a, you know, it was, they were very much into sustainability across the border. Sure. So compost and whole wheat bread, which I was very, I was mortified about that because everybody was eating white bread and I was having these like fibery <laughs> breads made at home, which actually I do recognize were delicious or were then I, every time I wanted like the white bread, I thought, eh, it's actually not that good. But anyways, the point is, um, I come from a family where that was sort of the way to do things. You know, as I was saying, like dry toilets, solar heaters for the water, solar oven to cook in, um, water deposits so that we could save the water from the rainy season throughout the dry season. And it was really a, a household that was very, it was an ecological approach to everything. And food was sort of that too. And the more they could do themselves, the happier I think it made them feel. But they were very practical also. I mean, it wasn't like my, neither of them had, I mean, both of them had a, a really intense jobs. So they, they enjoyed cooking and they enjoyed having good things to eat, but it wasn't like they went out of their ways to make meals that took them 12 hours in preparing. Right. I remember one time, my mother decided to embark on the mission of making chiles en nogada. Chiles en nogada are a very, I know for those of you who are into Mexican food, you will know it's a very special dish that is made in the fall. So be, because that's when we have pomegranate seeds, we have the fresh walnuts. And this, this, this is a, this is a dish that was allegedly uh, made by the nuns to our first independent president at the beginning of the, of the 19th century. In, in Mexico, sorry, at the beginning of the 18th century in Puebla. So this is, you know, you have to roast the chiles, peel the chiles, stuff them with this very sophisticated, um, uh, picadillo with meat and dry fruits. And it's a very, it takes forever to make. And you have to peel the walnuts, the fresh walnuts. And I remember it took us forever. And we finally made it. Or like we, my mother finally, you know, we put it at the table. And we tried it and we thought, no, it isn't good. And she said, this is the last time I'm cooking anything that takes me more than half an hour. This is the, that, that was it for her. So it really was not about being into food in a sophisticated or sort of a uh, very elaborate way. It was just right. about eating things that they liked. And it was a very, 
Italian food, I think, is easy for that. You have a garden, you put the vet, you know salad together. Yeah, you make a pasta, and we did have my father really does make the best pasta uh, at home. So that influence of food is so clear early in your life. And then yes. you, let's fast forward a little bit. So you moved to Mexico City to go to university. Yes. It's still sort of a, a passion of yours. You you care about food. You like to go out to eat. You're sort of yes. interested in food, but it's not what you're studying in university. You're studying history, I think, or art history. 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 Yes. But you sort of have this revelation. You say, I think you say Mexico City, one, was a place where you felt like you belonged. Yes, Mexico City was, a, it was a really cool time to live in Mexico City. I mean, it still is, and it's getting more and more. But it was, a you know, the late 90s, it was a time where we had for the first time elections and we elected the mayor of Mexico City and it became a government. It was like, it was like DC. It was like Mexico DF. It was like the district of the federation. And then okay. it became a state in its own. And so we had elections and it was a progressive government and it was everything was very exciting for young people. And I think there were a lot of young people who had traveled and had a very cosmopolitan, um, sort of vision of the world and of the city and, and you could do things and, and you still can. But then I think we really were the precursors of a, of a way of living in Mexico City that was new and fresh and, and sort of run by many young people who just wanted to do things that they had seen maybe abroad. Right. But in the city. Yeah. So, and you take a trip then to the beach. Yeah. We would always, we would go often to this beach. And every time we would go there, we thought, Oh my goodness, this is so, it's so delicious and fresh fish. And I, this is a place that, that I've been going all my life with my family. But this time we were, it was, I think it was over a Christmas holiday. Okay. And we were cooking for a ton of friends. And then after that, we just said, we should really just do this in the city. And this friend was living in Italy. He was sick and tired of living in Italy. And he said, I will come back if we do this restaurant. And we said, let's just do it. And, and a we weekend did it. trip became Contramar. And yep. here we are 20, 21 years later. Yes. Um, which is incredible. And, and the impact that Contramar has had on cuisine, on Mexican cuisine, on culinary world at large is, I think, it, not in question. Um, but there's a particular dish that has sort of become iconic. We obviously know what we're talking about, the tuna tostadas. Yes. Can you tell us how that dish evolved and how it sort of came to the status that it has now where it's mimicked around the world? It's often listed on menus as Contramar's tuna tostadas. I know. Anyways, <laughs> it's, I, I remember one like day that? walking in Chelsea in London and seeing a sign Tuna tostada. No, what is? What was it? Yeah, contramar tuna tostadas. And I said, like, do I have any rights over this? Should yeah. <laughs> I do anything about it? But anyways, I I I have always find it, found it very flattering, actually. Okay. Because I think I first of all, I never we I never imagined contramar would be the place it is now. And then we had no previous experience in the food world, so we really had no expectations. And the only thing we wanted is to make a good restaurant for the people that we knew in the city and that we felt needed a place like this. And yeah. it was true. And I remember thinking if a specific character, Carlos Monsivais, who was this intellectual, um, very, very prominent intellectual, I thought the day, the moment, he, the day he comes into Contramar, then that will mean that we have succeeded. Okay. And he came like the third week we were open and I thought, <laughs> oh my goodness, this is really fast. But <laughs> it's, awesome. it was always such an honor that people found it so, I mean, of course there were people who left and hated it. 
And when you open, you know, your, everything is, 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 is a little bit more messy. People now go to Contramar and some of them don't have good experiences. And the place has been open for almost 21 years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you never customers, you know, guests are guests and they're, they all have their stories and they all come with their stories. And having a restaurant is a very different thing from just cooking. Yeah. So that's, I guess, my first lesson. So it, it isn't just that you cook and you make a nice meal and people appreciate it. You, people are paying for it. So you need to be very serious about it. <laughs> right. But also, I mean, also there, there, there's a whole world that comes with having a restaurant. And for me, the discovery of that was super fun. And it was something I had never experienced, but that had always been an attraction for me. Like I really found restaurants fascinating places. I love restaurants, but I never, I also never got to go to many restaurants just when I was in the city, in uh-huh. the, you know, in the, in Tepoztlan, in the town where I grew up. There was maybe one or two restaurants we would go to, but yeah. not more than that. Right. And you didn't have restaurant experience working in restaurants. No, never. But you came in and you decided you're going to serve raw seafood, which no restaurant, very few, if any restaurants in Mexico were doing at the time, especially not raw tuna no, on a tostada. No, 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 no. Only Japanese restaurants were right. doing that. And so those were, were very you, few. Were you aware of the... I mean, I would think you were aware of the impact you were having then. You knew, no. did you know you were no, making, I was not. breaking ground in any way? No. Not at all. You just no. were doing what you thought was delicious. No, we thought we were doing, I mean, and it was the nineties. Right. People were into fusion. Food. Sure. Yeah. So people were into like Japanese e food or like, you know, they had like fried wontons with a tuna tartare. And there was, I remember this restaurant in New York City called Elephant. Okay. And really the tuna tostada was an imitation of this thing of like tuna, like raw tuna, fresh tuna. People, people, I, I still sometimes in Contramar have to explain that tuna is not a small fish in a can. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, people, but, but I, I did, I mean, I, I really did have, I guess I had more than the average individual's experience with seafood because I've always, you know, because I come from a family where we always did enjoy eating whatever we caught in the, you know, fishing and Italian food has a lot of seafood, you know, it's the Mediterranean. It has a lot of seafood influence. And my grandmother was from the Southeast of Mexico from Campeche. So that was, you know, the Gulf tons of, you know, pargo and like all these very like jaiba rellena, all these dishes that are super traditional and seafood. Mm -hmm. But I think in general, people are not that comfortable with seafood. So that was sort of, I guess, an advantage to our, lack of professionality in every way. Um, but, but that was the only thing. I mean, we did know how to pick a fish in the market. Sure. And we would go to the market every day at five in the morning and we, and nobody could believe we were going to the big fish market in Mexico City, which is a, a city in itself. And we found the right purveyors and we would go and we would check out every fish that we would serve. And we had our pescado a la talla, which is the other super iconic dish yeah that just became the the, the butterfly fish that just became super imitated and that that really was an invention of ours yeah because we usually that fish is open and butterfly open and and rubbed with that red sauce of different dried chiles but we did i was always very conscious of the um, fact that our restaurant had to be chile free like some of the dishes had to be chile free because we weren't making a mexican restaurant we really were making a restaurant where people could go and enjoy a good meal we that conscience of a mexican like exclusively mexican restaurant was not part of our idea and it was also i think if we would have made a mexican restaurant then it would have been a very different mexican restaurant 
Now, yeah. Contramar is a very Mexican restaurant just because it's Mexican and just because you're using Mexican ingredients. Okay. And for us to be, I, I remember, I mean, for me, many of the principles that led to Contramar are principles that nowadays are super relevant. Like, for example, everybody, it was a time, it was the nineties. Everybody was into foie gras and sardines from Spain and, um, mussels from New Zealand and everything from abroad was better. And I remember thinking, no, we need to only have Mexican fish, which is, I mean, if you think of the Mexican coast, it's not local at all, but it was local in, in the minds of people Sure. to not have, you know, crab from, I don't know where and salmon from, I don't know where, or cod from, I don't know where it was like, we were only going to focus on Mexican water, freshest seafood available. Yeah. And I think that was very innovative in a way, but that was very much in, which is why it's so interesting that then I opened a restaurant in San Francisco <laughs> because it was really very in a, in a night, it was very sort of based in a farm to table idea in a way. No other restaurant in Mexico city was that hippie. Like everybody else was trying to be European and seriously Northern Spanish or French or uh, we still didn't have li- really seriously good Japanese restaurants. We had like a, these fusiony things, you know, like the chipotle mayonnaise right. with the raw <laughs> fish, which led to the tuna tostada. Thank goodness for that. <laughs> yes. um, and we really started, we wanted ways in which to use raw tuna because we were buying it. It was the cheapest fish because everybody in Mexico who thought of fish wanted white fish. Nobody was into dark fish. Nobody wanted tuna. Yeah. That we would buy a kilo of tuna, like the fish cost eight pesos a kilo. Now it costs 450 or more, which I think is great because also we need to think of what tuna we're fishing, where we're getting it from. And so many times Mm -hmm. in Contramar, you now don't find tuna tostadas and it's a tragedy. People are, you know, mortified about (laughs) it. But thankfully we now also have influence with our, um, finding here of, of McFarland farms. They do a great job at farming trout, delicious trout. We have introduced them to a farmer of trout in Mexico, in Michoacan, and they have shared methods and nutrition for the fish, and the fish in Mexico has gotten so much better. And so now we also have trout tostadas in Mexico. Anyways, I'm getting ahead. I'm so sorry. No, 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 you're good. (laughs) Um, you alluded to your restaurant here, Kala. So we're, we've, I think you've set this question up perfectly because I think when we talk about Contramar, we think about the legacy of your seafood focused and sustainable impact there. I think when people think about Kala today, one of the things that probably comes to mind when they think about legacy is your decision to make a decision that a lot of your staff would be formerly incarcerated people. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us about how you made that decision and why that was important to you when you were opening Kala? Which is, it I was think, a five really practical decision. Okay. It was no, almost four years ago, Four, okay. but it was a very practical decision. I was not, um, and we actually at the beginning didn't, like, we didn't even want to talk about it because we didn't want to make that a source of, I mean, we didn't want to brag about that in terms of, getting people to go to the restaurant because we truly, it was a decision based on practicality. We, I was very concerned of how to make service be really good in San Francisco and really good in Mexican terms is really good, like seriously, extraordinarily good. And everywhere I went here, I thought only Mexicans can do this 
but I can't hire illegal Mexican workers because that's not sustainable. We need to do something. Who needs a job? Who would appreciate a job? Because everybody who was willing, like everybody who was a server or a sommelier in, in, in restaurants of the range in which Kala would sort of be situated more or less. I didn't find good enough in terms of the Mexican way of, you know, welcoming people and the, that Mexican hospitality, which for me is as important as the food and as the, as important as the quality of the fish. And I'm neurotic about the quality of the fish yeah. or, or the quality of the vegetables. But really, I, I, I was really concerned about that. And then Emma, who worked with me, uh, as a, you know, she started, she started, uh, Kala with me. It happened to be that she was, she had lived in Mexico City. She came to San Francisco and here she said, I am here. Do you, do you want to work with, like, can I, can I, can you hire me? And we started working together. She was my assistant for a while and she had worked at a prison law office and she knew that there was this massive problem in the city and in the country and in the mm-hmm. state of California yeah. of recidivism, people who would get out of jail and have no option and then would go right back to jail. So she said, there's actually, there are, I mean, there are actually all these programs that want to help people find jobs. So why don't we look into it? And I was delighted to yeah. find that there were all these programs that actually wanted to help people find good jobs. And unfortunately, or fortunately, you know, restaurants are places in which you need to work really hard. Like it's hard physical work. And, and it's, you know, hard physical work has always been left to people who don't have higher studies or don't, you know, haven't had the opportunity of choosing what they want to do. So these people that go out of jail have, you know, opportunities in construction when they have a little bit more knowledge of engineering or like some technical basis, then they can probably get more sophisticated jobs within the industry of construction. But the the food industry is a, is an industry that can take people who don't have previous training if they're interested in doing it. Yeah. It does take a lot of training and it is it is a very steep learning curve. But it's been totally worth it because in a city like San Francisco besides not having a culture of great service because nobody aspires to be a server, nobody can afford to live in the city if they're servers. Right. So it's not it's not only like a an ideological question for people. It's also a matter of what they can afford. And, and the, the city is in a real crisis. I mean, so many restaurants are interested in this hiring uh, practice of ours because it's a struggle for everybody. All restaurants are finding it very challenging to find people who are willing to work in these positions. Yeah. Let's turn to the cookbook, My yes. Mexico City Kitchen. Um, ah, when you. did you, <laughs> when did you decide to write a cookbook? I think you, you write a little bit in the cookbook that you saw a gap in Mexican restaurants, filled it with contramar. You saw a similar gap in the cookbook industry. Maybe you're filling it with My Mexico City Kitchen. I, I had, you know, when you have a restaurant and you are somewhat connected to the, I mean, even before social media and the more globalized food community that we now have, uh, people had offered me to make cookbook, you know, a cookbook of Contramar and every, you know, Contramar was successful. Like after right. two years, it was sort of not an institution, but it was an established restaurant in the city. And sure. even though nobody really thought that Contramar's recipes were sort of great chef creations, it was because it, I, I always insist that Contramar doesn't, 
I mean, Cotramar has recipes that we've picked up from traditional Mexican food. It isn't that I've invented, you know, black beans, refried black beans. It's just we do a good version of them, but it's nothing that I invented. But anyways, when, when, when I came, so I had sort of refused to make a book on Contramar. And I didn't want to make a book about Contramar because I thought that making a book about a restaurant like Contramar, when it was already so established, would be like defining it in a way that would end its growth. I don't okay. know. I, I, I was very, I was very skeptical. I didn't okay. not want to make a book about Contramar. So when I came to San Francisco, Kitty Cowles, where are you, Kitty? I saw you come in. <laughs> Anyways, thank you for being here. Kitty Cowles, who, for those of you who know her, will testify. She is very stubborn. And she decided, she was set on my making a cookbook. And she helped me to do it. And she set everything so that I could do it. And I am super grateful for that. But I, but I really, if it were not for her, maybe I would not have a cookbook. And maybe you, we would not be celebrating this. But I actually think that Kitty was smart enough to make me do it because I do believe there was a lack of in Mexican cookbooks, a lack of just a normal, everyday kind of guided way in which to make food that you could eat simply, not for only for a special occasion or not only when you have the possibility of sourcing incredible Mexican products or going to Mexican markets, but for anybody who wanted to cook or was curious about cooking Mexican food in the United States. And basically it really is the purpose of this book is that people actually can cook from it. Yeah. It's a home cooking book more than a restaurant book for sure. Um, And people who are in San Francisco, our beautiful audience here might also be familiar with Tacos Cala, which is your taco restaurant. And they might be surprised then to open your book and realize there's not a taco chapter, which I think you were intentional about. Can you tell us why? Because I have always known that you can put anything into a tortilla and a, anything can be a taco. <laughs> yeah. So making specific recipes for tacos is a very unknowledgeable way to approach tacos. Okay. <laughs> and so, so all of you now know that you everything can be a taco. I mean, as a kid, you ate spaghetti tacos. Yes, spaghetti tacos butter and salt tacos, jam and butter and tacos, um, anchovies with butter, which was a very Italian thing. My mother just started using tortillas as you would bread, which is what tortillas are. In every culture, we have a starch that sort of holds everything together. Right. Like, what do you use? What do you eat naan with? Any, everything. Right. And that I think the, the taco recipes are a very American thing of wanting tacos to be carne asada or cheese and I mean, whatever. Right. Right. Yeah. So as you were putting this book together, are there particular cookbook authors? I can think of one in particular who um, you include quite prominently in the book, Diana Kennedy. Are there authors that have been particularly influential for you? Yes. I, for example, I'm a, I'm, um, since in my house, we mostly cooked or mostly ate Italian food. The Artusi cookbook was like a, by memory. Like I know, yeah. I know some of the phrases and like we quoted profusely at home. And, um, Ada Boni. I love Marcella Hazan's cookbooks. Yes. Alice Waters, The Art of Simple Food, if, even though I didn't grow up with it because it was, it's a more recent cookbook. Um, just, has a lot of what I, what did influence me about, I guess, her or what did resonate about what she was doing here with what I was, um, 
interested or with sure. the way I had grown up. Um, but let's see. Um, there are, there was a very important collection of popular Mexican dishes that, that was called y la comida se hizo, but that was a very, very popular, I guess, it, I don't know. There were like 12 numbers of, of those, of those cookbooks that were just compilations of traditional everyday Mexican food. Okay. Uh, but there's... I, but I love cookbooks. I have yeah. a, I, I'm, I'm a, I think, Everybody now, it's very difficult to resist cookbooks. And cookbooks have always been really beautiful objects. I remember, for example, seeing Gala, Gala and, um, and Dali. I, I, I remember, I remember looking at that cookbook and thinking that's really interesting. Not that I ever wanted to, you know, put pearls and, and, and precious stones in my food, but <laughs> it, it really, I mean, I, I, cookbooks have always been, I think, an object of beauty in many ways. And I, I remember, for example, seeing, looking at the drawings of what Leonardo da Vinci would do for banquets or like the beautifying of food, I think, in cookbooks have, has always been a thing that I've appreciated. Yeah. And then Diana Kennedy. And then Diana Kennedy. Oh my goodness. Real mentor. And also an impediment to do anything because what do you do after Diana <laughs> Kennedy? Like who needs to write anything else about Mexican food? <laughs> it's true. Hers, hers are encyclopedic works. What role did she play for you though? I know you know her personally and she came to Contramar, I think early on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They brought her to Contramar and they told me I was in the kitchen and they told me Diana Kennedy's out there and I nearly had a heart attack <laughs> because I had like we had. I guess friends in common, you, like we, I knew many people that knew her, but I had never actually met her other than I was young, when I was younger and I didn't, I wasn't in food. I didn't have anything to talk to her about. I didn't even, I wasn't even interested in Diana Kennedy then, but I mean, I just knew her like she was a famous author, but because, because my aunts, my Mexican aunts, when my mother moved to Mexico because she married my dad, they gave her Diana Kennedy books. So okay. Diana Kennedy, like it, I knew who she was, but it wasn't, you know, it was, and I also, she has a really bad reputation, a bad in terms of she's terrible. I mean, she tells everybody what she thinks and she hates. I knew then when I had the restaurant, I knew how, how, how difficult it was to please her in terms of food sure. and how much of a super fierce critic she was. So I was terrified. And then she called me at the end of the meal and I went and I said, Oh, hi, it's lovely to meet you. And she said, Oh, my darling, that was so good. And I thought, oh. <laughs> and she, and I, and we, and she, she decided she wanted to become, to become my friend, which is the most flattering thing that has happened to me. Yeah. I love her. That's incredible. dearly. And there's a bit. On I, I still book. have not, di I have not discussed this book with her. I'm sure she's going to hate it. <laughs> I don't know. There's some beautiful photos of her. There's a little section on her in there. It's it's a nice little homage to her. So, yes, she's very she's very 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 important in my life. So we always end with a little game. So I thought we'd play a quick game and then take a couple audience questions. Okay. And I thought we'd play a. We just talked about your phrase. Anything can be a taco. So I thought we'd put it to the test. We have these little secret ingredient cards we use. Oh sometimes. my goodness! So I'm going to have you draw a couple secret ingredients and see if you can tell us how you taco it. Okay. What do you make? I that like goes the in verb. I like the verb. <laughs> All right. Okay. I shuffled these. How many? Um, can I trust let's do you? one at a time. One at a time. You, you can okay. Trust me. I shuffled. Okay. Oh my goodness! This is a tough one. 
Oh, gochujang. Gochujang. Which I never know if I'm pronouncing right. But you know what? I would just, I would just put it in there. <laughs> just, just straight. <laughs> Nothing else. Because it's sort of like a, pa- it's like a chile, it's like a paste, right? right? It's like a little salsa, right? I yeah. would do that, and if it's lacking in salt, add a little bit of salt. Simple, Done. simple, spicy, delicious. Okay, right? let's do another one. Let's there see goes. if we can Comes stump in you. Plain and spicy. Yeah. Depending on what it is, you right. could, you could add some spice. If you wanted your taco to be spicy. I mean, it sounds delicious. Yeah. Let's let's try another. Passion fruit. Ooh. Okay. Passion fruit, I have to say, is something that I have... I've always lived with passion fruit. And usually what we do with passion fruit in Mexico is we make agua fresca. Because it's, you know, it's... It's acidic and it's a little bit sweet, but not that sweet. You need to add a little bit of sugar to it. Sure. But what I've discovered in California is that it's a wonderful source of acidity. Okay. When you don't have, when it's not lime season. Okay. So when, when, so I, I actually have made ceviches with passion fruit and they are really, it's a really, wow. it's a really, it, it adds like the sweetness that so many times fish benefits from and it adds acidity. So I would make a ceviche with the passion fruit and then put it in a tortilla and make a taco. <laughs> also, another way in which everything can be a taco is that if you fry a tortilla, uh-huh. it becomes a tostada. Right. And anything can go on a tostada. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's do one more and then we'll open it up to our okay. wonderful audience here. Coffee beans. Oh, that's hard. <laughs> Coffee beans in a taco. Did we stump you or can you do it? I have faith. No, I mean you. In <laughs> there are recipes in 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 Mexican food in which you do a rum with chiles and coffee, mm. and it usually is on pork meat that can hold sort of the bitterness of that. And I would do that in an adobo, put it in an oven or a barbacoa, like a slow cooked, and then and then eat it with a tortilla <laughs> in a taco. <laughs> <Yeah>. Awesome. <laughs> well, this was so great. Thank you so much, Gabriela. We're going to open it up to our audience now. Thank so you. if anyone has questions for Gabriela, Leslie. Hi, tell us about your go-to meal for family gatherings. Who is cooking for your family? What do you make? It depends where. If it's like my son and me having dinner, usually I will make pasta. But if it is... um. I don't know if it's more people. I love making more uh, like chiles rellenos. I love making chiles rellenos, but just with cheese and beans. Those are my favorite. So we were in Mexico City over the holidays, ate at Contramar, <gasps> but I was so surprised at how much fish there is there in a landlocked city. Can you help us understand why? Okay, this is my same reasoning why we opened Contramar in Mexico City. Mexico City is a very central, Mexico is a very centralized country and everything comes together in Mexico City. And we just, one of the things that we, that we, that we, that we saw when, when we would go to Cihuatanejo or in going to Cihuatanejo, and this is a coastal, this is, this is a, a place in the Pacific, north of Acapulco. And every time we would find, you know, fishermen that would come with their fish, with their fresh fish, and we would buy from them. We would ask what had happened with the rest of the fish. And they always talked about having already sent it to the city. And so then we d- went to the market in Mexico City. And it is a humongous market in which everything is sent in and then redistributed. And it's either frozen or they do all sorts of different things. Um, 
but it but it is very centralized and historically there's those there's the the you know history i don't know i mean there is it is in a codex that moctezuma the emperor had fresh fish that was rallied to him in from the from the gulf fresh every day so people would run for stretches and get this fresh fish to the emperor i mean i don't know if it was as common as the chronicler was 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 accounting or but but it is but it is everybody it talks about the fish moctezuma's fish so it is it is a city in which we have everything it's sort of every it's a melting pot of all the country and even you know people from the there's a huge migration of everybody to mexico city there's a representation of every state in mexico city so you actually have access to really incredible food and ingredients and it's in a very prosperous valley and mexico city used to even have like sweet uh what is it not 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 from the ocean the Fresh water, fresh water. I, I, I'm thinking sweet water because that's what, how you say it in Spanish, but no, fresh water fish in Mexico, because in Mexico you have, I don't know whether you saw Xochimilco. Mexico was flooded. A part of Mexico City or the Valley of Mexico City, which is called Xochimilco. And the center also was, was, you know, people were, would transport in these, in these long, um, sort of canoes because it was flooded with water. So you had fish there. And people, there's a tradition of eating fish. People in markets, there, there's always fish in markets. Always fish in markets in Mexico City. Uh huh. Sure. Um, I heard you will be advising the president of Mexico. Oh my goodness. Um, what will you advise? <laughs> I, I, it's still not defined, and it really is still not defined because he had asked me to help him with um, a board for the promotion of tourism. And now tourism has a lot to do with food and gastronomy. And I think countries have, have proven that, you know, it's a, it's a very, it's a very important source of identity for a nation and whatnot. But that board, we decided to shut that board down because this is a government of austerity. And, um, it's a government in which I have great trust because I think Mexico desperately needs a president that will look out for the interests of more people than just the financially privileged ones. And I don't know what I'm going to advise him about, but I hope to be able to advise him and many of the different uh, secretaries of state on food issues on Mexico. I'm, I'm very concerned with the fact that Mexico's health is, could be really benefited from a better eating system and better food distribution system. And I really hope to be able to do something about that. One more question. Yeah. Could you let us know about your collaboration with Jessica Coslow in LA? Yes. When do you think you're opening up? We are <laughs> opening in July. We are opening Onda, this restaurant that's going to be at the proper hotel in Santa Monica. And it's going to be a restaurant that's going to be in a hotel. So it's going to open from breakfast to lunch to dinner. And Jessica was kind enough to invite me to do this with her. And it's been really fun sort of conceiving it and thinking of how it will work and bringing a menu by me to that part of the coastline of, of that area in Southern California. It's very exciting. And I, and you know, Los Angeles is the second largest city with more Mexicans after Mexico City.
It has more Mexicans than Monterrey, more Mexicans than Guadalajara. LA is the second largest population with Mexicans. I mean, the second largest city populated with more Mexicans. As if you weren't busy enough, you're opening another restaurant with Jessica Coslow. You're yes. advising the Mexican president. You also have a Netflix um, documentary coming out this month but, on Contra Marcala. Yeah, but that was a commission that Netflix did, and that okay. really I I did nothing for it other than give too many more inter- many more interviews than you can actually see in the film because it's a 30 minute documentary, and that's always you know it always they always need to film much more than the 30 minutes that you actually see. But it's a really it's a cool homage to to or homage to Contramar and Cala and to that relationship of two countries through yeah. the restaurant yeah. business and menus and staffing and but that so that's not that I I really have to do very little for that other than watch it. <laughs> you're still you're still doing a very lot. You're I, doing a lot. You're very busy. Well so speaking of being very busy, thank you Gabriela. This was so fun. Thank you all of you for joining thank us. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening to our first recording in front of a live studio audience. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find recipes for Gabriela Camara's tuna or trout tostadas and Contramar's signature red and green grilled red snapper. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Today's live recording was done at Omnivore Books in San Francisco. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you tired of political podcasts, peddling horse paste, and man supplements? Then listen to The Bituation Room with me, Francesca Fiorentini, featuring progressive comedians, activists, and experts. We break down the week's news with plenty of laughs and ridiculousness, which we desperately need, while diving deep into juicy left topics like remaking the police, abortion rights, and why Jeff Bezos is a cyborg. Get the Bituation Room right to your ear holes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, anywhere except Facebook. Podcasts on Facebook are going away June 3rd, so consider yourself poked. The Bituation Room with Francesca Fiorentini. If I can't laugh, it's not my revolution. A-cast, 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 A-cast recommends. recommends.